You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. To find out more about the journal and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. Today, Dr. Carol Lannan and Dr. Jay Imes, on behalf of their co-authors, join us to discuss their manuscript using a state birth registry as a quality improvement tool. Administrative and population health data sets are powerful tools for research into maternal and infant health, but may have some limitations due to uncertainties about the accuracy of the recorded information. The goal of this project was to develop methods to improve the accuracy of birth certificate data while undertaking a project to reduce the rates of scheduled deliveries without a maternal or obstetric indication prior to 39 weeks in community maternity hospitals in Ohio. This project was undertaken by the Ohio Perinatal Quality Collaborative, a consortium of Ohio perinatal clinicians, hospitals, and policymakers. Previously noted differences in quality project outcome data and data obtained from birth certificate registries demonstrated a significant degree of discordance. The authors thus developed a program with two goals. The first goal was to reduce to 5% the number of women in Ohio between 37 and 38.6 weeks for whom induction of labor or cesarean delivery was done without appropriate medical or obstetric indication. The second goal was to improve birth registry accuracy so that focused variables will be transmitted accurately in 95% of the records. To accomplish these goals, the investigators use an adapted learning collaborative model with site visits to each hospital to develop and disseminate guidelines to avoid deliveries without indication prior to 39 weeks and to evaluate and develop processes to ensure accurate transmission of data into birth registry databases. Plan, do, study, act cycles were then used with frequent contact, including on-site visits, webinars, and creation of progress reports between the investigators and the included hospitals to assist in data audits and development of site-specific mechanisms to address these goals. Fifteen hospitals participated in the program with the average delivery volume in each hospital of approximately 1,200 per year. Some key findings regarding errors in entry of birth certificate data include more errors when medical record staff enter data than when maternity staff enter data, and inconsistency in interpretation of vital statistics definitions of data variables. The authors also noted during this intervention a 35% decline in deliveries without documented indication from 9.26% to 6.07%. The authors concluded that regular communication and collaboration between clinical obstetric staff and birth data abstractors were identified as essential to assure the accuracy of information. Focused key lists of variables provided an achievable target for overall process improvement. The authors were not able in this study to determine changes in accuracy of birth registry data. Overall, the authors concluded that this project was able to demonstrate successful strategies to improve birth data accuracy, which may be applicable on a wider scale to a variety of maternity hospitals. Dr. Lannon and Dr. 
Times, welcome, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting us. Glad to be here. First off, I'd love it if you could give us a little explanation about the structure and goals of the Ohio Perinatal Quality Collaborative. Sure. This is Carol Lannan. The Ohio Perinatal Quality Collaborative is a consortium of Ohio perinatal clinicians, hospitals, and policymakers who jointly established OPQC, as we call it, in 2007. The mission of the Ohio Perinatal Quality Collaborative is, through collaborative use of improvement science methods, reduce preterm births and improve perinatal and preterm newborn outcomes in Ohio as quickly as possible. We do that with an all-teach-all-learn philosophy, knowing that together we improve faster. One of our goals is to use improvement science methods to improve outcomes as quickly as possible for pregnant women and infants throughout Ohio. We began with funding from the state and the federal centers for Medicare and Medicaid innovation focused on a state outcomes grant, and we use that to launch two projects, one that we've called the 39-week project, and Dr. Imes can go into some detail on that was with 20 obstetric practices. The other project focused on neonatal population and reducing bloodstream infections in very premature infants. Both of those initial projects were quite successful in improving outcomes for patients and families and have led us over the past eight years to work closely with our state partners on improving other efforts. One of the key elements in quality improvement is to have a population goal in mind and to pursue projects that are well supported by existing literature and supported by authoritative groups such as ACOG and SMFM and the CDC and others. And then to do projects about which the participants are excited. And the first convening meeting that we had for the neonatal and obstetrical teams, we didn't know each other. We knew we had to pick a project. And the project that the obstetrical teams overwhelmingly were most enthusiastic about was the reduction in near-term scheduled deliveries. I try to avoid the word elective because it makes it sound totally without reason. So I use the word scheduled instead. But that was the topic that the neonatal folks were hoping we would do because the nurseries were full of these 37, even 38-week babies, and the obstetrical team was equally excited about that because they often had to shift babies around because they didn't have enough room for the smaller premature babies. That was kind of a wake-up for me. I thought it was going to be something more esoteric but you have to have enthusiasm from the participants in order to ask clinical teams at each site to spend time and not get any extra money or any extra help to spend time doing a quality improvement project. So we were fortunate to catch the wave, so to speak, in that we asked people what they wanted to do, we did what they said, and we were not alone in across the country in catching that wave of let's reduce these deliveries. So we were fortunate in that, and that principle of quality improvement is to choose topics that are enthusiastically greeted by the folks you're trying to work with. So the manuscript today, using a state birth registry as a quality improvement tool, arose out of this Ohio Perinatal Quality Collaborative. What were some of the motivations specifically behind undertaking this study? 
this particular study was the product of our success with the 20 largest hospitals, which I think almost all of them had residency programs and were affiliated with teaching. And so they already had a workforce that was a little larger and a little more easily able to conduct a data collection. When the success occurred, of course, the, our sponsors, the Ohio Department of Health and Ohio Department of Medicaid and the CMS uh, sponsors wanted us to go to every hospital in Ohio, and we quickly realized that they would not have that support. And the other thing we recognized, I think Dr. Ed Donovan, the founding neonatologist, gets credit for this. He insisted that we collect not only the hand-collected data in our initial project, but we compare that to birth registry data. And we all complained that birth registry data wasn't accurate, it wasn't timely, and so what was the point of that? And his response was that it is being collected and it has a rate, and that rate is going to be influenced by or should be influenced by what you're doing. If you're not moving this imperfect data in the birth registry, then you're really not having a population impact. So you must do that. So we all said, okay. And what we found was that there were some hospitals in the original big 20 hospitals where there was wide discordance between the birth registry and the hand-collected data and other hospitals where they were more concordant. And we realized that at about the same time we were planning to disseminate or spread this project to the other hospitals. It became pretty easy to figure out why hospitals that had a wide discordance had that. And the answer was that the birth registrars were simply not communicating with the clinical staff. And so they were doing the best they could, but they were in two different worlds. And the ones that did have concordance had some sort of communication with the clinical and the birth registry personnel. So that was obviously the genesis of this project was to say, okay, we have to do two projects. We want to reduce near-term births that lack a medical indication in every hospital. But to do that, we're going to need to use birth registry data. We can't ask these places that are smaller to collect hand-collected data. And so we need to do a quality improvement project to improve the birth registry, not only the accuracy, but the timeliness of it. So that's how we kind of got started. You alluded to this some, but you know, birth registry data sets are frequently used as research tools. They're used in epidemiologic studies and explored in quality improvement efforts. So I think a lot of people use these birth registries. What are some of the benefits of these population birth registry data sets, and then what are some of the challenges of these registry data sets? I was going to add something to what Jay said about our spread plan. We had worked with the 20 largest hospitals in Ohio, which accounted for close to 50% of all births. The state wanted us to spread what we had learned to all maternity hospitals in Ohio. We recognized that our initial work had focused on hospitals that had pretty deep infrastructure. So pulling a team together for improvement, collecting data was fairly easy for these larger hospitals. And I put easy in quotes, recognizing that improvement work requires some extra effort by all involved. When we thought about spreading, we knew we had about another 90 hospitals to get to in the state of Ohio. And there was a significant range among those hospitals. 
So we worked with the state to identify an initial group that would care for one of the state's areas of focus was to really focus on sites with large numbers of Medicaid patients. Part of our funding comes from the Ohio Department of Medicaid and collaboration with the Ohio Department of Health. So we looked at hospitals that had a high percentage of Medicaid patients and that were in a diversity of areas across Ohio, including both different geographic locations and a mix of urban and rural hospitals. We decided to work with about 15 hospitals so that we could pilot what we had done with the large hospitals, adapt it, and then spread that to the remaining 75 hospitals where we knew that the birth registry data was going to be the only QI tool that we could use to provide feedback for the sites because we knew that many of these smaller hospitals did not have depth or infrastructure to collect some of the additional data that had happened in our initial project. So that gives you an idea of how we designed this phase of the project to extend this to all hospitals. Let me answer your question about the use of birth registry data. One of the things that we've tried to do for the Ohio Perinatal Quality Collaborative is always keep our focus on population health. And when we think of the population, we think of the state of Ohio. In this case, we were very fortunate to have a great working relationship with our state partners at the Ohio Department of Health, including the Vital Statistics Registry. And when we had begun our initial project in the 20 large hospitals, at that point, they were able to provide us with birth registry data within a month so that we could provide data feedback to sites monthly. And this made it a terrific quality improvement tool where you're really looking at data in real time, over time, to look at the changes you're making in your practices and seeing what impact those have. As we began the work that is highlighted in this manuscript, part of our funding for this really a significant part came from an award from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And Jay Imes and I were invited to Atlanta to meet with the other awardees along with some of our other OPQC colleagues. And at that meeting, I remember that Bill Callahan at the Centers for Disease Control said something along the lines of birth registry data is how we determine our priorities and our focus at a public health level for the future. And the data we're collecting in Ohio now will help to determine the needs and identify any gaps that we need to address at the state level for the future. I'm mentioning that because I think it's really important in thinking about how we can use these data sets. And I think that concept was also very important when we started to spread the project because it became clear to us that many of the birth data abstractors didn't really have a clear sense of the importance of their work how this was used at their local, state, and at the national level. And I think providing that perspective really gave the abstractors a sense of pride in what they were doing and in the contributions that they were making every day in their work. 
we encountered some of the difficulties in the initial 39-week project with the 20 largest hospitals around the definitions of you know what's hypertension, what's preeclampsia, what's a valid reason for a scheduled birth. So we'd gone through some of the more medical barriers or you know rough spots at that level, and we ended up creating a list of 13. Uh, since been added to a little bit, but a list of 13 specific variables that were absolutely essential to be recorded, and we made sure that we made that list and that we identified, defined uh, exactly what those variables were, cleared up in a lot of face-to-face -face and phone calls, cleared up controversies over how to code things. You know, we could list a lot of those things, but they were pretty much the standard ones that you'd expect, and probably the single most important one for us was the accurate, consistent determination of gestational age using best obstetrical estimate, and that is, of course, a national discussion that's kind of, I think, been all pretty much settled now, but we worked on that and the definition of a variety of other conditions. So those things had been done by the time we took this to the other 90-plus hospitals in Ohio. I think that's an important point about this study is that those who practice in a large academic center, some of this is already sort of done and they have more access to people who have maybe a larger training and more experience. But the setting where you did this, the manuscript that we're talking about now, might look different. Can you describe just for our audience what the type of hospitals look like, like how many deliveries do they do, what types of staff are you engaging to collect this data, what their experience might be? The hospitals we approached had, as Carol said, they were geographically diverse across the state. We're a fairly compact state in that we're not that far from one, you know, east to west or north to south. So we could pretty easily reach with visit these hospitals. They typically delivered about 1,200, 1,500 births some of them a little smaller, some a little larger, and had often one or two groups of physicians who were doing deliveries, maybe three at the most, so that we were often engaging hospitals where there was a dominant player. The chief of staff was the chief offender, so to speak, of wanting to deliver his patients on the day when he was convenient for him, that kind of stuff. And we emphasized with the hospitals that we are not the police. We are the data collectors and the information resource we can process your data and you can compare your data to what others are doing and we can tell you how far outside or inside the lines you are, but you're the ones that have to make the change. We're not going to come to your hospital and shake our finger at Dr. So-and-so for doing things that are outside the MACOG guideline. There was a lot of telephone contact and a lot of education about how to do that. As Carol said, the populations were urban and rural, and the rural hospitals, of course, have sometimes some reasons for scheduling things that they need to do when they can. That's not necessarily the case for urban hospitals, so we had to account for some things like that. I might just add, Table 1 in the manuscript gives a summary of the number of births that occurred the year before we did this project in the hospitals. As Jay said, the mean was about 1,200 with a range from about 500 to 4,000. There was a range of percentage of births to moms on Medicaid from a low of 5% to a high of close to 77%. And we also included, we were able from the birth registry data to identify how many scheduled births 
birth were done without medical indication. And there was a significant range from about 4% to I think it was almost 37%. And we purposefully included some sites that had very low numbers because we knew we could learn from them what they were doing. It's often helpful to have some sites like that when you're doing an improvement effort so that people can share what's worked and others can use that and adapt it. In your manuscript, you describe a couple of tools you did for implementing this program. One of the things that may be good from this manuscript is providing a model for other places to replicate the program that you established. A couple of these models that you had for disseminating this information included the Adapted Learning Collaborative Model and the Plan, Do, Study, Act Model. Can you describe how those work or how you implemented those in this project and how this helped keep hospitals and providers engaged over this time? The model for improvement and adapted learning collaborative model are improvement science methods, both developed by the Associates for Process Improvement and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. With the learning collaborative model, we brought teams together for a face-to-face, what we call a learning session, very purposeful so that we're all learning from each other. One could call it a workshop, but we frame it a bit differently. At that initial meeting, where we had teams come together. It was a clinician, the birth record abstractor, often a nurse and an obstetrician. We set the stage. Jay talked about what had happened in the initial project. We shared some of the things we had learned about the variation in accuracy and reliability of birth registry data and shared data from each hospital site that we had obtained using birth registry data. So it was both learning about what were the recommended practices regarding 39 weeks, what we had learned, and then actually seeing where your site fit and identifying any potential gaps. One of the ideas with the model for improvement is that you identify your outcome or your goal in being in the project. You have some measures that help you track whether you're getting there. And then you use what's called the Plan, Do, Study, Act so that you're really testing strategies. I think sometimes when we want to implement things, we say, okay, on March 1st, all of our practice will start doing X and we find that we hit some bumps in the road with that. So what we do with the Plan, Do, Study Act is suggest that you think about what processes might need to be in place at your site, how they differ from what you're doing now, and then you do some very small tests of change to see what strategy will work. And we really supported uh, teams in doing that, shared what was working at other sites, And what we try to do is create a community of learners. We have monthly phone calls where teams would share what they were doing and teams could ask questions. We had two terrific quality improvement consultants who were both perinatal nurses in a former life and so were terrific at identifying issues and also supporting the teams in between those monthly calls. Let me interject an example for of that PDSA stuff that you were talking about. One of the keys to identifying scheduled births that didn't have a good indication was asking sites to adopt a, a log and simply ask the question, what's the gestational age and what's the 
reason for delivery. And then to introduce that, rather than saying, here's a standard form that you can all use, we issued some examples from the other previous experience, but we asked them to give this to two or three physicians at your site, to a labor and delivery scheduling person and tell us what you think about it. Try it out for a few patients and then make your own changes. And of course, they could all customize this to put their own brand mm -hmm. on it, so to speak, not only to put their label on it, but to make the adjustments that they needed. So we didn't insist that they do it exactly in some central way. We asked them to try it out. And as Carol said, don't try it out like this is what we're doing. Hand this out and ask people to use it for four or five patients at the most. And that's, you know, plan and then revise it and then get hit send the new one out and let the people make their comments about that until you don't get back any more terribly negative ones and then you say, okay, this is the form we're going to use. That kind of stuff is you know, repeated over and over and over again. And there isn't any standard way to do it. It's, you know, this is a goal. These are the methods that other people have used. Pick the ones you want from this list. Maybe you'll use all of them. Maybe you'll use some of them and work towards getting the outcome that you want. And we'll feed that data back to you and you can see how fast you're getting better compared to somebody else. And on these phone calls, we would be able to highlight Hospital X to say, how did you deal with this problem? And we know that they're successful because they're the ones we asked to do it. And we know that there are others on the call for whom this has been a problem. And so they get to hear about how Hospital X did it. Usually, as you go through a project, you find that Hospital X is on the receiving end of being taught by the hospital that they were sort of teaching before. So it, it gets to be a, a pretty <laughs> process. Fabulous ways to get people engaged and develop ownership in this process. I was new to this. You can tell that Carol understands the <laughs> research foundations of this, and I, I had a little bit of new language, but it really is pretty common sense, really. It's kind of how you would approach things in another realm. Of, I tried this and it didn't work, so I'll try something else because I want to get that goal. It's quite a bit different than research where you have to follow the protocol. It's like you get the change mm -hmm. it doesn't work. I think it was really important for the smaller centers, particularly as we spread to the additional 75 after this pilot, because what works in a large place may not always work in your site. And it allows you, I think as you just said, to take some ownership, to really tailor things to what works in your site. The good thing is you're always tracking your data. So your goal is to get to the outcome and use strategies that work for you and your colleagues and patients. So it really is a great method. The other thing I'll say is that there are many improvement methods. I think people know about Six Sigma, Lean, the model for improvement. They all come from a very similar theory. One of the reasons that we like the model for improvement is it is very action-oriented, and we find that in healthcare and medicine, we're often thoughtful, reflective, all good things, but there may be a lot of planning and consideration, and it takes people a while to get to action. And our thought is always, how do we get to our outcome most effectively and efficiently because babies and moms are depending on us. So we found the model for improvement very helpful in our various work efforts. We've touched base on this, but what would you summarize as the most important outcomes from this work or this, I call it a study, but I think this project or this quality improvement project, mm -hmm. what would you think are your most important mm -hmm. outcomes? 
I think I'd say the most important outcome is the demonstration that the birth registry data can be customized and made more accurate and made more timely so that it can be used to track your performance over time. It was really something that the birth registry folks were doubtful that we could achieve. I certainly was doubtful about it, but I think that probably the number one takeaway from this is that the birth registry is, if you go through the changes that we did, it can become an active part of quality improvement and, and quality improvement results in population health change. There are the specific features of the project you're working on, but for us, we think we can look forward to lots of projects in the years to come that will rely on birth registry information. I'd agree with what Jay said and add that I think behind that, what's important about using the birth registry as a QI tool, we really developed some key learnings about the importance of collaboration between the birth registrar and the clinical team. We developed some tools and strategies. There's five modules that the state helped develop and is now revising. The idea that rather than try to, what do they say eat the elephant all at once or something, we instead of attacking all 300 birth registry variables, we identified what group of content experts in obstetrics and neonatology thought were the top baker's dozen the 13, and we really focused on that. It was a manageable level for the birth registrars and the clinical team. And I think what happened is we built confidence that for questions about the other 287 data variables, you had someone you could ask if you weren't sure about it. And so we really, I think, developed a culture of collaboration at the site. And that, to me, is something, while we believe it's been sustained, and we hope that that will be a legacy for the state of Ohio. Do you have specific plans or a specific set of programs to ensure sustainability? Yes. Again, with support from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Ohio was selected as a mentor state for several other states with a second award, and we used that funding and support from our state colleagues to develop regional workshops throughout Ohio that bring together birth registrars and clinical teams. There are a set of office hours monthly where sites can call in with questions about the birth registry data. We're updating some of the tools that were developed. Jay has been a real part of this and may want to talk a little bit more about it. We're also in discussion with the Ohio Department of Health Vital Statistics about how to continue this when the CDC funding ends because I think we've developed a very nice partnership with the vital staff group there. The two things that I've been doing with Beth White, who was one of the original quality improvement coordinators, she's continued in this, is to do these monthly virtual office hours where somebody from the vital statistics and a clinical expert and Beth are on the line typically to give a brief presentation about a particular diagnosis 
service or a particular field on the birth registry. And then there's open time for questions. And then the other part of it is these regional workshops. One of the things we've profited from is that there are the faculty of volunteers and some of them supported, some of them volunteer physicians and nurses who are available in throughout the state. So we have these periodic regional seminars and sometimes I go as the physician and sometimes other physicians located in the northeastern part of the state will go or somebody in the Cincinnati area in the southwest will be the clinical expert and we all are there to give a little presentation about what we're doing now, what's the current project, we've done the progesterone project and reported that and so we have questions about that on the birth certificate and updates on what the Joint Commission is now requiring for this or that variable, things of that nature and it really keeps that birth registrar workforce engaged and supportive and I hope excited with their work. They ask good questions. We sometimes are like, yeah, you're right. What are we going to do about that? Anything I missed that you want to talk about? I would just emphasize we're not the police. You know, we're not, this isn't a top-down thing. We have found success with data gathering and measurement and packaging and returning it to sites and sharing their data and allowing them to compare it to everybody else's aggregate data. No sites have so far volunteered to publish their data, but so everybody knows that what OPQC can gather will stay with OPQC. We have not had a security reach, so to speak, and I think that's part of our success as well. Everybody gets their own and they get the aggregate and, and that's it. Dr. Lannon, Dr. Imes, Congratulations on this work. I think this sets out a great model for how you can encourage and facilitate improvement in data collection as well as sort of a, a large healthcare system-wide quality improvement program. And hopefully uh, other places will be able to take some of what you guys learned and apply it to their own areas. Thank you very much again for taking the time to join us today and congratulations on this manuscript. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next time when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.